you'll go ahead and take your Bible, we're back in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis 35 and 36, looking again at the life of Jacob. Betty, it is so good to see you today. We have missed you. I want you to know that. We have, we have missed you. Um, the book of Genesis, we have been studying together for quite some time. Now, I know you're looking at it and thinking, okay, we've got like 14, 15 chapters to go through still. And Evan, you have taken a snail's pace to get us all the way up to 35, 36. I promise you, these chunks of narrative will move a little bit more rapidly from here. And so in about eight weeks, we will be done with the book of Genesis. And uh, we'll go from there into 1 John, and then we'll have a couple of Christmassy sermons. And then in January, we'll start through the book of Revelation together. I've got all of 2020 planned working through the book of Revelation. That's right. We're going to beginning to the end is kind of what we're going to be hitting here uh, over the next uh, a year and a half or so together. And um, I'm sharing that with you because... We have to keep in mind when we look at someone like Jacob and what happens today in Bethel, we have to keep in mind that all of this points to the culmination of the world, culmination of what God has planned and how he redeems us and how he has called us. That's why we're looking at Genesis through the lens of who Jesus Christ is. And how all of these stories, all of these, all of these uh, journeys with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham and with Noah and with Adam and Eve, all of these are singularly located in God's perfect plan to deliver us uh, from our sin through the blood of his son. He made that promise very clear in, in Genesis chapter 3. He told the serpent that there is going to be one who comes that will crush your head. There will be a redeemer, one that will undo all that you have done. And so, so now we've just been walking and looking and seeing what takes place and how God shapes us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but guys in, in the general, I'm not like... Male, female, everybody, guys, everybody, you people, a church family, all of us together. But one of the things that has continued to stand out to me as we have walked through Genesis is how God continues to use flawed people to bring about his purpose. Folks, I want you to know I take great hope in that. Sometimes we can talk about these biblical people, these biblical characters, and we can pedestalize them a little bit. We can put them up there like, man, if I only had the faith of Abraham, if I only could do, I mean, Israel, that's the whole people of God. And you start looking at their lives, you're like, well, you know what, they're just as messed up and broken as I am. And ladies and gentlemen, if God can use someone like Abraham, if God can use someone like Jacob, God can and will use you. That's what redemption is all about. How God takes our brokenness and makes something beautiful out of it. And he does all of it in what we call a covenant. So let's look in Genesis chapter 35 together. We're going to look at the first... Um, Excuse me, the first 15 verses together, and then we're going to walk through 35 and 36. And if you've got your place and you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together, um, looking at these 15 verses from Genesis chapter 35. It says there, Jacob's, uh, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, 
and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had in their, and their rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all his people were with him. He built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel, which means the, the house of God. Because God had there revealed himself to Jacob when he had fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel, below Bethel under the oak and it was named Alon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you shall no longer be called Jacob and Israel is to be your name. Thus God called him Israel. And God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where God had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and he poured oil over it. And so Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Let's pray together. Lord, your word provides such comfort and such encouragement. Your word continues to show us that you are a living and an active God. You are not something fabricated. You are not something that is made out of wood or clay or metal with our own hands. But you are a God who reveals, a God who promises, a God who protects, and a God who saves. Lord, today I pray that you would help us to walk in light of what you have done for us in Christ. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, so if you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, um, Jacob ran into some trouble. We're not going to go into all the details from uh, the, the sermon a couple weeks ago. If you missed it, it was Memorial Day weekend. You can jump on our website and you can catch it there. Um, and, and you can see kind of some things that are addressed when it comes to, to abuse and, and sexual abuse. That's how scripture would have us look at that. But because of all these things that are going on in Shechem and the treachery that happens in Shechem, God now says, all right, Jacob, let's move. And it wasn't, Jacob, you just start wandering and I'll, I'll lead you where you go and you just wait for me to kind of give you a GPS voice out of heaven to show you where to go. He tells him specifically, we got to go towards Bethel. If you will remember, when all of this started, Jacob had, had, had cheated his brother Esau out of the birthright and out of the blessing. And Esau, his brother, his twin brother, was not very happy about that. This was not cheating at Uno or Monopoly. This was was cheating in real life and this stole from Esau all of the biggest blessing and all of the rights to the property and to the family and to the inheritance and Esau says I'm going to kill him not like you know when I get my hands I'm going to pummel him a little bit because we're brothers and we fight literally kill him so Rebecca his his um 
Their mother heard this and said, you know what? Um, We've got to get him out of here. So she goes to Isaac, tells Isaac, Jacob can't marry one of these girls from around here. Send him to my family to get a wife. And so he leaves and on the way, God appeared to him and the heavens were opened up and he saw the figure of the ladder and he saw God up there and God said, I'm going to be with you. And God comes to him now and says, go back to that place. Go back, take your family with you and go to that place where I appeared to you and told you who I was. And so Jacob moves his family to Bethel. He picks up everybody and he moves them to Bethel. It says there in chapter 35, go to Bethel, live there, make an altar to God who appeared to you and when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family, put away your false gods. Now, I want you to see something very real about Jacob and his family because his family is like your family. His family is imperfect. His family has those people that you really just want to smack across the head. His family has those people that don't worship God the same way you do. But can we be real for just a second? He's like us. He's put up with false worship. He's allowed it to encroach into his inner circle. See, Jacob is, Jacob's the chief, right? He has the authority and the ability among his sons and among the servants of his family and everybody that's involved with Jacob, he has the ability to execute true justice and true worship and say, we're not putting up with that, we're not doing it, you're not gonna have those, this is my house, we're not doing this. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you have the rule in your house. Spend the night at my house Saturday night, you're going to church with us Sunday morning. I don't care. I don't care where you're from. Don't care what you believe. You're in my house, my rules. You're going to church with me, right? We, we, we can do that. It's your house. They don't want to go to church with you. There's a Motel 6. Tom Bodell will leave the light on for them. Right? And, and so, so Jacob had that authority. But Jacob, like us, also has flesh and skin. And the propensity and the inclination to look to what he can manage, what he can control. So right there in his house, he says there, hey, um, the, the real God's showing up, so hide your idols is basically what he's saying to him. The real God has come back, so put all this trash away. We're going to, it's, parents, just be real for a minute. Not just parents, I mean, you might be a parent and your kid doesn't live with you right to church anymore. It's kind of like you've been listening to like political talk radio or rock or whatever all week, but hey, we're going to church. Let's put it on the Christian station, right? We're going to worship God, so let's put it on the Jesus station. Let's put it on the Jesus music, right? Because we got to get ready for church. That's kind of what's going on here, except for to a greater degree. But we've got to go because God has called us. And here it says, they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods and whatever they had, their rings, which were in their ears. And and Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, there was a great terror. See, God is honoring their obedience. No one was coming after them. See, in their day, you, you remember the parable that Jesus told about the good Samaritan? 
Man's going on his way from city to city. He's out there on the country road, on the back road or whatever. And the band of robbers raids him and beats him and leaves him. That's common practice. You travel in mass like Jacob would and it would be normal for someone to come and pick off some sheep, pick off some servants, pick off some people to attack because they see you are mobile. You are a nomad. So you don't have this structure in the city. The city was the safe haven. The city, you got to get into the city to get inside the walls. And it says there that no one pursued them. But terror struck everyone around. See, when you decide to obey God and what he has called you to do, people may come after you, but you're leaving yourself to the protection of God. You're, you're leaving the results to him because you said, you know what, God, you've called me to this. And so I'm, my responsibility is to follow, to do what you've asked me to do, not to wait and look around and say, but if I go that way, I'm out of the city and somebody might attack. Some of you want to get out of the city. I don't blame. There's less traffic outside of the city. But when your livelihood, when your safety, when all of your family depends on the security of the city, he says, I'm going to follow the security of God. And God says, look, I'm making everyone go away. He gets to Bethel. He starts constructing the altar. And notice when what happens. It says, God appeared to Jacob again, and he blessed him. See, he blesses him and changes his name. Israel is established in Bethel by the covenant of God. Israel is established here. See, this is how God passes from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. You remember when the covenant was made with Abraham, his name changed. He had been Abram. Now he's Abraham. Here the covenant is made and you have been Jacob. You have been the deceiver, the heel grabber. But now you are the one who strives with God. I am with you. Notice what he says here. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So there God called him Israel. And God also said, I am God Almighty. I want you to know something. God does not make promises and covenants just because he thinks it's a good thing. He does it because of who he is. He does it because of his great nature, because of his great benevolence, because he is a favorable God. He's not sitting up there on a cloud waiting to strike you with lightning because you said a bad word when you stumped your toe on the, on the you don't, say the, don't need to say the bad words, I'm not excusing that, but he's not sitting there. You don't have to live in fear that he's going to strike you or smite you because you did one thing wrong. He is a good God. He is looking to bless you. He is looking to strengthen you. He is looking to, for you to know who he is. And he says there, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. I want you to hear those words through Jacob's ears. Jacob, who has cheated his brother and been sent out from his family, who has been cheated by his father-in-law, who was then cheated again by his father-in-law when it came time to collect what sheep were supposed to be his and what herds were supposed to be his. Laban tricked him again. And he is out wandering once again, going from place to place in fear of going back to see his brother. And now he's settling in Shechem and he's being moved from Shechem. He has not had a home. He's 
He's rented a few places, but he's never been a homeowner. And God is making this promise to him that you will have kings. In order to have a king, in order to have a kingdom, you have to have some established boundary, right? You can't, I mean, you can call yourself a king, but if you don't have any subjects in your kingdom, you're just calling yourself whatever you want. I mean, that's what we do. We live in the self-identifying age. We can just kind of identify as whoever we want to be, right? I'm going to self-identify as a six-year-old and go crush the t-ball league next year is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to win the championships, man. That's going to be great. That's what, we can self-identify as whatever we want. So we think. But God is making a promise to a man who has had no home that he will have a land, a possession, a place where kings will rise up from the ranks. That's huge. That's not just, I'm passing down what I promised to your grandfather. He's saying, I am giving you a place to rest. Rest. See, that's ultimately what God's covenants come down to, is rest. The people of Israel turned their back on God when they came out of, out of Egypt. And Psalm 95 talks about how God swore in his anger they would not enter his rest. Jesus looks at us and says, you know, come who, you who are heavy laden, who have a burden, and I will give you rest. He says, on that day I will look and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your reward. Not like the leftover, like this is the extra that you didn't get in life. No, the rest, the ultimate rest, the end of striving. He says, you're one now who strives with God. But I'm giving you rest. I'm giving, are, are, are you tired of trying to do it all yourself? Look at this covenant. This rest giving God. But before the rest is delivered... Jacob runs in, or Israel now, runs into some problems. It says in verse 16, they journeyed then from Bethel where there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear for now you have another son. But it came about that her soul was departing for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. Shifted the name from son of my sorrow, the name Ben means son, son of my sorrow to son of my right hand. See, Israel is established by the covenant of God, but then Israel runs into some immediate turmoil. Because Rachel and Isaac both die. Here in these next few verses, he loses a wife as he is welcoming and enjoying the presence of a new son. 
The, the, the birth is supposed to be a time of joy and it's supposed to be a time of, of exuberance. Man, it's a, it's a new son. It's a new boy. It's a new life. And, and you know, I got like the Lion King mentality. You know, you hold him up there to the sun and, like, ah, and everything's all great and wonderful because you're presenting. But Rachel, the wife, the woman that stole his heart, when he was there, by the well, seeking to draw water. And there she was. And the bells went off and the angels sang and everything in his heart said, this is her, this is the one. Now, now, now she's gone. And, and, and he goes on and it says, Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That pillar of Rachel's grave is there to this day. And Israel journeyed and pitched his tent towards the tower of Adair. And it came about that while um, sorry, sorry, let me scroll down. The days of Isaac were 180, verse 28. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. See, Jacob's now home. This is the first mention we've had of Isaac since Jacob left, right? Since he was sent to go find a wife, this is the first time Isaac reappears on the scene. We don't hear anything really else of, of Rebekah, but we do hear of, of Isaac now. Now, I want you to think, man, this is a man. He has a family. He's come home. He's going to reestablish. God has just made this covenant with him. And now he's got to walk through this without his dad. Dad's gone. And his wife's gone. I know. He's got Leah and he's got the two concubines that were given to him. And he had sons to them. But Rachel was the one that took his heart. And here in the wake, man, you're starting to think, wait, God, you, you gave your covenant. I thought your covenant was supposed to be good and, and supposed to bless and, and there wasn't supposed to be trouble or turmoil and because of your covenant. We'll come back to that. But they're gone. In chapter 36, it says, these are the records of the generations of Esau, who was Edom. Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan. Adal, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, uh, the sister of Nabaoth, and Ada bore Eliphaz and to Esau, and Basemath bore Ruel, and her, she bore Je Jewish. Je Je you got names here. That's a lot of names. And Jalam. And Korah, and these were the sons of Esau who bore, were born to him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all of his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together in the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of the livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. See, things aren't fully resolved, are they? There's forgiveness extended from Esau and it looks like a, a good happy homecoming. But now Jacob is faced with being in this land that God has given him alone. Yeah, he's got 12 sons now. They're there. They're there. They're, they're around him. He's got his wife, Leah, and the, the two concubines there. But Rachel's gone. Daddy's gone. 
And even though his relationship with his brother had been on the rocks for the better part of 25 years, Esau's gone. Just when it seems like everything's coming together for Jacob, there's, there's trouble. There, there's trouble in the land. You've been there, right? Just when it looks like you're getting that breakthrough, something else breaks. Just when it looks like you're, you're stepping forward and things are looking up, man, all of a sudden you're face planted looking down. Just when it seems like everything is going to go right, something punches you in the heart. And if you step back and you've got to ask the question, what's God doing? I think that's kind of where Jacob is in this. And were it not for the verses surrounding the covenant, we would be sitting there with him, man, I don't know what you do. I don't know how we make sense of this. But we have right in the midst of these two chapters a simple point, and that is this, that the covering of God's covenant is protection in the most difficult of circumstances. The covering of God's covenant is protection in the most difficult circumstances. Covenants cover us. Some of you have lived in a covenant-restricted neighborhood where there is something that covers your buy and sell and use of your property. It's more than just having a HOA or a POA. This is something that kind of limits who you can sell to, where you can sell. If you live in an in a active 55 plus neighborhood, man, you can't go and sell it to that spry 35 year old with three kids. No, no, no. You've got to find somebody in that saying there's a covenant that covers the, 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 the use of the property. Here, we've got to look at what God's covenant does. It wasn't just a simple promise that was given to Jacob to say, yep, I'm God, this is your land, you're gonna have a family. It was to say, you come under the covering that I am providing because life gets tough, life will run you down and if you don't have the protection of the covering of God's covenant, you are on your own. And, and I've seen people try to weather the storm, so to speak, alone. But I've also been in the hospital room when someone passes away and there's an eruption of praise, an eruption of worship because the understanding that God's covenant, it, do, it, it doesn't take away the pain, but it protects in the difficulty. So what do we do with this? Folks, I want us to see something very clearly that the cross does not take away or eliminate the presence of trouble. But it does provide strength when it comes. I, I believe that God is a God of blessing. I believe that God is a God of the most generous proportions. He will place his hand on you and place his hand in your life and encourage you and strengthen you and draw you to him. But that does not mean that just because you know Jesus, you no longer have to deal with problems. You've been there, right? 
And I'd like to apologize for everybody of my profession, of my colleague that has told you otherwise. There is a cancerous line of teaching running rampant through Amer the American church that tells you that God's favor is all for you, all for you, all for you. And if you don't have God's favor right now, there's something wrong with you. Because if you've got God's favor, you're going to have good health. You're going to have a full bank account. You're going to have all the stuff that you want. That's not what the Bible teaches, period. God loves you. God wants you to know who he is. And sometimes he shows you who he is the clearest when you have nowhere to turn but to him. When you can't do anything but look to him. Not to your finances, not to your health, not to your friends. Because everything there will fail you. But the cross of Jesus Christ will provide you the strength that in those times you know who God is. I believe that this happens in sequence the way it does in Genesis chapter 35 because God wanted, Isaac, or wanted Jacob to know before Isaac is gone, before Rachel is gone, before Esau is gone, you only need me. I promised your granddaddy Abraham this would be his. I gave it to your daddy Isaac and now it is yours, not because of your family, but because of your God. Period. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you say, you know what, God, you've made a covenant with me through the blood of your very own son. He is not promising you that you will no longer be sick, that you will no longer struggle with bills, that you'll no longer have rude neighbors, that you'll no longer have a, a husband that treats you bad and no longer have a wife that nags you, no longer have disrespectful kids. And anyone that tells you otherwise has lied to you. Because I do not want anybody to walk out of here and say, you know what, I'm going to sign up for Jesus because the preacher told me that if Jesus will make all my problems go away. Mm -mm. No, he's not Tylenol. You can't take the Jesus pill and feel better. Because the covenant of God is not a crutch, nor is it therapy. We, we've got to see this. God's covenants are not crutches and they're not therapy. They're not something for you to lean on and kind of learn to get your stability and once you're able to walk without the crutch, you walk without the crutch. I had, I had knee surgery when I was 15 years old where they went in I, I tore all the cartilage in my right knee um, playing soccer and um, you know, trying to be an athlete which really just wasn't in the cards for me but um, and they had to go in. They said, the doctor said, well, you know, you're, you're young. You're 15 years old. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're going to make this incision here. We're going to do this and we're going to go in and we're going to reconstruct your meniscus. Now, you, you've got two pieces of cartilage on top of your tibia and your fibula. You have your medial meniscus and you have your lateral meniscus. Your medial meniscus looks like a donut and your lateral meniscus looks like a C that kind of goes on that donut. It's kind of like the person eating the donut, right? Right? And what had happened was all of the cartilage in, in, in this 
was shredded. And they said, you know, we're going to go in there and we're going to stitch it up. And we're, we're going we're gonna to put it together. We're going to put you in this big immobilizer brace. And you won't be able to put any weight on it for six weeks. And you're going to be on crutches. And then after six weeks, we'll uh, take you out of the immobilizer brace. And you have to walk with a crutch for a couple of weeks to kind of get your stability and everything. And so the plan was to get me off the crutch. The plan was to get me to where I could stand up Clearly, I don't have a crutch anymore, right? I'm not standing up here still leaning. Because something went right with the therapy and something went right with the physical side of that to where I can stand up here and I can walk around. I can't run, but I can do some of the other things that I'd like to be able to do. That's not how the covenant of God works. Jesus did not save you for you to do it on your own. Jesus did not save you in order to help you feel better. We look at scripture wrong. We look at church wrong. We look at life in Christ wrong when we think, you know what? I'm going to do that so it will make me feel better. It's not about feeling better. It's about glorifying the most high God. And when we start looking at it as therapy, once it doesn't make us feel better anymore, we're going to try to find something else that does. And then something else that does. And when that does it, something else. So when we come to Christ, when we come to faith, when we come to what we believe and what the covenant of God is, we've got to come at it the right way. If we're coming at it because we're expecting to get better and have better health, then when it does it, we're going to go to a doctor. We're going to pop a pill. If we're coming to it because we think we come to Jesus, it's going to make us wealthy, then what's going to happen when we're still struggling to pay our bills is we're going to cast off Jesus and we're going to run to something that will, a lottery ticket, some, a, a friend, a neighbor, a better job. We're going to learn to all these things, trying to chase the money if we came to Jesus looking for the money. If you came to Jesus to get out of a, because you thought coming to Jesus would get you out of that broken relationship, that, that's not what he did. He came to heal the brokenness in your life when it comes to sin. And those effects will affect the relationships. And you may see, you may see uh, financial freedom because you're honoring God in the use of money and finances. You may see uh, God's hand actually physically heal you. I've watched it take place in people's lives. You may see re broken relationships around you, but its purpose is not just to make you feel better. It's to help you see that God loves you enough that he would offer you to be in a true and saving relationship with him. Because diagnosis will still come. Death will still come. Financial problems will still come. But he will not fail. Ever. He doesn't fail. He says, I and God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Your father is not. Your wife is not. This land is not. I am. That's the covenant. And ultimately what you and I see is that our life in Christ is a result of who he is. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something very, very clearly this morning. You come to Christ because of God. You don't come to Christ because you had a preacher or a Sunday school or a church. You come because of God. 
You come because God saw that you were broken and you needed a savior. You come because God looked at your sin and said, there is only one option to avert the wrath and that is the blood of my son. And I am God Almighty and I am the one who can redeem. So I will provide the redeemer. We have life in Christ because of God. He is God Almighty. He is the Savior. He is the one who can do it all. You're looking here at Jacob and you're thinking, man, how amazing is it? How amazing is it that God would say, you know what, you're just grafted in because of your dad, but God would come directly to him and say, I want you to know something, Jacob. You've got this land, you've got this family because I am God. You have faith because he is God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you've never trusted this God. You've tried everything else to get rid of your problems. I'm gonna let you know real quick, I've already told you, God doesn't get rid of all your problems, but he does give you the strength to get through your problems. And sometimes God will in his power and the only way that he can get rid of your problems for you. But ultimately God wants you to know that he is God. He loves you. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Maybe today is the day that you decide, I want to trust him. That's that's the God I want to serve. And we want to give you an opportunity to place your hand into the hands of the Savior. To place your sin at the foot of the cross. Whether you've got a little bitty sin, you just told a white lie to somebody. You didn't really take the cookie out of the cookie jar, but I mean, you, you did take the cookie out of the cookie jar, but you told them maybe a rat got it. That's a little white lie. It's still a lie. It's still sin. Maybe your sin's bigger than that. Don't be ashamed. Come to him. Let him do his work in you.